All right, guys, welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today it is not Crystal Kyle and Friends, it's Kyle and Friend. I have Vosh here with me. Crystal is taking care of some uh, family stuff that we got going on right now, but that will not prevent us from having a beautiful conversation. So, Vosh, thank you for joining me, man. I appreciate it. Oh, um, anything for you. And, uh, you know, this is this is how you East Coasters always disarm us. You know, I'm over here in Seattle. I don't normally wake up for an hour. I'm sleepy-pilled. Um, I'm cozy maxing right now. I've got my cardigan on. Um, hopefully my brain works well enough for me to talk politics. Uh, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And that was my plan. My plan was to get you so early that the brain's <laughs> misfiring just a touch. And then, well, that'll even it out a little bit. It's a classic start. No, it's, it, no it's stack the deck even further in your favor. <laughs> um Really, though, it is nice to talk to you. Same here, same here. All right, so let's start with, um, let's go to the election first because there's so much going on that I'm interested yeah. in your uh, thoughts on. So, look, Trump won Iowa, Trump won New Hampshire. He won both of them comfortably. Nikki Haley is staying in for South Carolina, but that's really like a last-ditch effort. I don't know if she thinks she could pull off a miracle and win it, which she can't, um, or if she thinks, look, he's got 91 criminal charges. He could be taken off the field at any minute. I just want to be the fallback option if he gets removed. Uh, I don't know what she's thinking, but what do you make of Trump's like complete iron grip on the Republican Party? Because it's literally unlike anything I've ever seen. I think this pales in comparison to like how Obama uh, had a lot of Democrats on his side. I mean, it truly is cultish from my perspective. So how do you view Trump's iron grip on the party? Yeah, it's it's funny because the DNC is a lot less internally democratic in terms of their willingness to allow outsiders influence the party. We saw that with Donald Trump back in 2016, where they at first hated him, but kind of like he just won and took over the whole party. And I think that now, in a way, the... Um, the GOP has flipped to the other side where in a de facto sense, they've actually gotten far, far worse because you can't deviate from Trump. They tried this experiment with DeSantis, you know, like, can we get a more controllable guy? Can we get somebody who's a little more like malleable than Trump? And they couldn't, they they, they can't, you know, he they well and truly like he is the guy that they just have to deal with. I think Haley, maybe she wants to be like a fallback option. Maybe she wants to legitimize herself for a future run. I mean, she's young. She has all the time in the world, right? She did weirdly well, I feel, with the independent turnout in the uh, New Hampshire primary. I thought that was interesting. Obviously, the Republicans came out for, for Trump, but, you know, a lot of, um, I guess, angry or disaffected independents or like rhino types came out for her. I don't know if that means anything in terms of the general election, but I think the GOP's reliance on Trump right now is a big weakness. Leaving aside the age, the fact that mentally he's deteriorating, same as Biden, they're both old, you know, um, uh, the court cases. It's also just like, the lack of flexibility ultimately means that even if they get everything they want, I mean, the man's eventually going to die. And when he does, I don't know if they have any kind of fallback. Even with Biden, like, I know we don't like her, but I feel like the liberals could muster up some kind of, like, you know, uh, muster for Kamala Harris or whatever. You know, I don't think it'd be good, but it'd be something. With the GOP, though, it really is just Trump. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess that's a weakness of theirs if anything happens to him. Yeah, so I'm going to get back to the general election thing in a second because I see all sorts of bizarre signs that I've like never seen before in politics. But I actually do want to touch on the DeSantis thing because you mentioned him. I was wrong about DeSantis because when I looked at him, I thought, look, this guy is like Trump 2.0. He's like the updated version of Trump. He's very similar to Trump when it comes to policy. He's very similar to Trump and how he berates the media and things of that nature. Um, and I thought if the Republicans started caring even a little bit about electability, that they would go for him because in, there were signs after 2016 that every election from then on, the Republicans always underperformed with Trump being the top guy. And so I thought they were maybe wising up and maybe they would go with DeSantis. But I was 
horrifically wrong because at the end of the day, it didn't matter if he's like the updated version of Trump. They want Trump because of the show. They want Trump because he triggers the libs the best. They want Trump probably because he has four indictments and 91 criminal charges against him. Did you, when you looked at DeSantis, did you think like me, like I actually do think he's going to be the next thing? Or did you think Trump is going to steamroll this guy and they're going to go right back to daddy? At first, I thought he had, I thought DeSantis had a real chance. Um, the, I mean, obviously, as time went on, DeSantis became more and more of a charisma black hole, and Donald Trump got a little more of his energy back. But I think, like, you, you're right. Like, there are, it's, he's a legitimate liability. Donald Trump is really charismatic in his way, and that obviously has worked really well for him, but he's a huge liability. Like, January 6th being a huge example, right? January 6th could have been, I mean, it could have been their big moment. It ended up being a, um, I don't know, kind of like the, the average liberal now, like the just a regular off the street liberal can comfortably say, oh, the GOP, oh, you mean those fascists? Oh, you mean those guys who did the insurrection, right? Like cemented a lot of negativity against the party, a lot of um, militant opposition off of a failed, I mean, what you know, like Donald Trump's little like ego trip, right? Stuff like that makes him tough to control, I guess. And if you... I mean, DeSantis, I, like, man's empty, right? Like, he would have done anything he's told. So you're right. I think it's it's not just a matter of electability. It's just, you know, the GOP is beholden to a number of interests, business interests, certainly not being the least of them. And he, uh, yeah, that stability is just bad for the market. We, we've seen a lot of the, um, the general, like, corpo elite stuff kind of shift away. Peter Thiel, not backing Republican candidates anymore. Uh, their opposition to Disney and Bud Light leading to a kind of awkward, like, I think that a lot of corporate backers are, are looking at them nervously and thinking, wait, hold on a second. Can we like literally not even advertise to progressive demographics anymore? Because if that's the, if that's what Republican leadership looks like, like that's actually bad for business. And I mean, hell, if that keeps up, they're having funding problems in a bunch of states, even at a federal level, like after paying a portion of Donald Trump's legal fees. <laughs> I, yeah, and in spite of all of this, of course, Biden is still polling terribly. So remarkably, the DNC in this wonderful environment still managing to come out the, you know, the perceived loser. Yeah, so, okay, let's get to that because Biden is now, for all intents and purposes, the nominee. He's yeah. the inevitable nominee. What primary? Uh, in New Hampshire, he didn't campaign. He wasn't on the ballot. He basically told the whole state of New Hampshire to fuck off and said, we're kicking you out from being the first state to vote, even though it's literally in your state laws that you have to be the first state to vote. And not only did he win, he won with a literal majority as a write-in candidate. It's really so funny, actually. It, it's it's actually great. I've never funny. seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it. So it, it actually mirrors Trump in certain ways in that like the, the base of the Republican Party is like, yeah, this is just our guy. Get over it. I actually kind of see that on the Democratic side, maybe it's not like the Democratic base per se, maybe it's like older liberals or whatever. I don't know exactly how it's analogous, but my question for you is, who's the favorite in the election? Because when I look at it, I see so much contradictory evidence. I look at the national polls, I see Biden in one poll at 33% approval rating. He's underwater with independence. He's now losing young people uh, to Trump in one poll by four points. He's losing Latinos to Trump uh, by four points. He's got Arab Americans and Muslim Americans in Michigan in particular, they had a 60% support for him and now it's all the way down to about 17% because of what's happening yeah. in Gaza. So I look at that and I see tremendous weakness, but then to the point you just made, in the New Hampshire election, there were some very scary signs for Trump too because basically every unaffiliated person, every moderate, every independent were like, I'm going for Nikki Haley over Donald Trump. So independents hate Donald Trump. So how do you evaluate the evidence and who do you think the favorite is? 
I think it's really tough to say because approval ratings work differently right now for the GOP and the Democrats. Um, if you like Trump and you're going to vote for Trump, you approve of him. There's not much of a Venn diagram between people who are like very critical of Donald Trump, but will vote for him. Whereas I think that with the Democrats, this is just this is the thing with like liberalism broadly and with Biden specifically. There are people who will like begrudgingly vote despite being critical. I, I like that describes probably me. I mean, that describes a lot of people that I know where like there's no way you can approve what Biden has done, you know, but in like you you did like hard tax, brass numbers, whatever, you know, I don't want Donald Trump to win. And in that sense, maybe he pulls ahead. So I think the 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 polling might not be reliable just because like it's it's kind of like you look at Trump's presidency, Trump's approval rating barely budges, right? Like people yeah. pretty much made up their mind about him really quick. So I don't um I don't know. I, I feel like polling was invented by the devil to to take hope <laughs> from you know fair-minded progressives sometimes. It really does feel sometimes like the poll the pollsters exist to sort of like deceive us and throw salt in our way. Uh I I I, I try to close my eyes to this stuff, but man. Like the data is so bad for Biden right now. I, I don't. I don't know. And and anything could happen, right? Because like literally, like we could wake up the next morning and it's just like, oh, here's a ruling against Trump, or like Trump fell down the stairs, or whatever, or Biden did. I have no idea. I've never felt less certain about any political outcome in my in my life. It's it's so yeah. ridiculous. I think people are underestimating the likelihood of Trump just being taken off the field. Like, don't don't get it twisted. I think the Supreme Court is likely to rule with Trump when it comes to the case where they're trying to kick him off the ballot because of the 14th Amendment. But I don't think it's a foregone conclusion because those uh, conservatives on the Supreme Court are more like Mitt Romney-style conservatives. And we've seen conservative judges previously, like with the uh, court cases he brought over the election, they toss it out of court and they laughed him out of the room. And so it's possible that the Supreme Court says, actually, this does apply and you did attempt an insurrection and we're taking you off the ballot. And if that doesn't happen, it's also very possible he gets found guilty on any one of his 91 criminal charges before election day, general election day, or before inauguration day. In which case, in that scenario, I think we're looking at a constitutional crisis. Let's say, hypothetically, uh, Trump wins the primary, that's already a given. But then let's say he wins the general election. And then let's say before inauguration day, he's found guilty on like 17 of his 91 criminal charges and the punishment is prison time. What the hell do you do in that sort of a scenario? Just, We're totally Nobody knows, like nobody knows, right? Or, or maybe, maybe some people think they do. I, I don't think I do. It's, it's kind of terrifying. I feel like there's no, like almost certainly between now and January 20th, there's going to be another Jan 6-esque situation. Something is going to, I have no idea what, something is going to happen. Um, Donald Trump has been mentally deteriorating for a while. That's not like new or surprising. I feel like lately he's been especially cooked. He's an old man. He's running out of energy. Like he's been bouncing between these court cases. It's got to be really stressful. It would be like, this would be exhausting for a person of any age, let alone- yeah. The average amphetamine-addled New York businessman <laughs> in his like late seventies or whatever. Like, there's there are limits. Um, it, it, between that, between the fact that like um, uh, both he and a lot of his co-conspirators in these cases are running out of money, like Rudy Giuliani running out of money. People have flipped on him in these cases where they had MAGA judges they couldn't afford anymore. So now they have conventional judges who immediately told these people, stop lying, go to the other side, you know, stop defending Donald Trump. Any number of things could happen, and like. Inevitably, no matter what, any outcome, even including Donald Trump, falls down the stairs and dies. Like, there will be a conspiracy about it. It'll be the deep state. It'll be the FBI. No matter what happens, like, the deep state is is responsible. So I don't think there's a clean exit to this. I don't know. I have no idea where we go from here, to be honest. It, like, every positive sign that I saw from 
four years ago has waned, like January 6th support. Initially, Republicans were like, like at first there was like, eh, but then like really quickly they fell off because like, oh, that looks really bad. Now like 80% of Republicans defend it or, or it was like the deep state or something. So yeah, I don't know how we get out of this, I guess. It's, it's pretty so, weird. So when I look at both Trump and Biden, so when it comes to Biden, I would say his biggest weaknesses right now are backing Netanyahu and what he's doing in Israel. I, there was a poll that just came out, which I was stunned by, which was, I think it was 50, it was either 50% of young voters or 50% of Democratic voters, I forget which one it was, basically thought that Israel's doing a genocide in Gaza. So I think that's one of his biggest Achilles heels. And then the other thing is there were uh, pandemic era social safety net programs that were like really robust during the pandemic. And then as soon as the pandemic's over, they sort of took those away. And so people on the lower end are, are feeling that hit. And I think that's also hurting Biden in the polls. And so despite even like the good economic numbers, like the, you know, low unemployment rate, inflation coming down or whatever, I don't, I think there's a disconnect between that and how people feel. So I think those are his biggest weaknesses. And when it comes to Trump, I think his biggest weakness is of course still Roe versus Wade and the fact that it's because of him that it got overturned. And also, as you pointed out, January 6th, insurrection stuff, election denialism, being a, a literal criminal, 91 criminal charges. If there was any other politician with 91 criminal charges, they'd already be done completely. So those are what I think are the two biggest weaknesses of both of them. What do you think are, are the two biggest weaknesses of both of them? Oh, well, I completely agree with the Netanyahu thing. That's a killer, you know. Um, Democrats overperformed in 2020 and 2022 yeah. in large part because young people don't tend to vote, but the ones that do are like very energized. You know, they they tend to organize. They get the people around them to vote. They tend to like, um, they, they rope their friends into it, you know, college campuses. Hey, let's all go register, that kind of thing. Um, so a lack of energy Midst young people is 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 devastating electorally. Like that's so important for the Democrats in the in that demographic that is um, massively skewed in in you know in the favor of uh, the DNC. Um, the 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 social welfare welfare program thing. Like I agree completely. It really does feel like a lot of the goodwill towards the Biden admin has dried up over time because some some of that stuff is really difficult to maintain long term. Like in our bloated like you know um, uh, sort of corporate state, like maintaining anything good or decent for that long is politically unviable. Well, not unviable. It's really difficult. I guess it's difficult to um, to pitch or to sell to people. I think that another big weakness for Biden right now actually is the border crisis. Um, I I. I don't care about illegal immigrant, whatever, migrancy, they come in here, welcome ye huddled masses. I don't care. However, like purely from like a, a, a perception side of things, um, there are a number, like a significant number of um, undocumented immigrants crossing over migrants or whatever. And um, as we see right now with Greg Abbott, like this is rapidly turning into like a massive, and it's losing a lot of um, uh, uh, Latin people down near the southern border as well, because there are a lot of like embittered Mexican immigrants or whatever who are like, hey, I went through the legal process. Why are these people going like waltzing right in? Um, it's a really unfair situation because I don't like to be the guy to argue that you have to embrace conservative border policy in order to be electorally viable. I don't think that's true, but it's also a situation that it seems the Biden administration doesn't have a way of dealing with because the the discourse really polarized, right? Like you can either be a conservative on border issues or you can be whatever the Biden administration is, which is functionally like very similar to what Trump was, but it doesn't seem that way to a lot of people. Right, yeah. So just to catch people up, because I don't even think they really fully understand how much this situation at the, at the border has spiraled out of control. There was a huge Supreme Court decision recently yeah. where they voted 
five to four and basically upheld what's called the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which is that federal law overrides state law. So Greg Abbott, who's the uh, Texas governor, was trying to uh, do his own border policy. And he added like razor wire in buoys in the river and he added razor wire on land. Disgusting. And And Border Patrol said, look, man, like we're on the same team here, but if somebody's drowning in the water, we need to be able to go save the person. In fact, the other day, there were two kids and one woman who drowned and Border Patrol was trying to save them. Federal Border Patrol was trying to save them and the Texas National Guard wouldn't let them. And so there was this big crisis of hierarchy, like who's really in control here? Is it the Federal uh, Border Patrol or is it the, the Texas National Guard? And so it ended up in court and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And again, it was only a 5-4 decision to uphold that federal law overrides state law, which is absolutely preposterous, which shows that a lot of people on the court are just, they're not even idealized. That's not even the right term for it. It's just like they have no principles and they just side with whatever their position is on the issue. They just reflexively side with whoever's repping that in the moment. So in this instance, they were like, yeah, I'm in favor of more razor wire and more chaos and fuck the immigrants. So let's have the Texas National Guard, you know, be in control here. And so that led to Greg Abbott turning around and saying, I don't care that you uh, ruled 5-4 against me. Now I'm sending more Texas National Guard down there. Now I'm putting up more razor wire. And so you have this really weird standoff now where it's like the federal government versus and, and Biden versus the Texas National Guard and Greg Abbott. And it just feels like everything is falling apart at the seams. Like this should be a simple fix, but it's like we're on the... Verge of some sort of conflict as a result of it. It's 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 insane. Uh, Biden has to crush this now. Uh, like th- this is incredibly dangerous. You do not want to normalize any Republican governor literally just like violating Supreme Court orders and federal law to do whatever they want. If you give Greg Abbott permission to do this, they all have permission to do it. Um, Biden, it, the, like obvi- the Texas National Guard, ultimately answers to the Commander in Chief. Um, all he would have to do is like officially take control of them, and that would be that. There's not like there's no there's no room for actual like militancy here right like there's no there's no texas army like it's not going to come down to that the most dangerous outcome here long term both in terms of like absolute number of deaths and in terms of like future legal precedent is letting greg abbott get away with it because again like you said five four on the supremacy clause this is this is just like this is like unironic secessionist rhetoric right here i know the texas i know the lone star state likes to lean into this stuff and you know we'll all abide there i guess like their 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 tourist bait you know uh, you know, independent spirit bullshit if they want. But when they start actually putting that into gubernatorial statements, that's, I mean, that's insane. If, yeah, Biden is weak, obviously. I don't know if he's going to do anything about this, but this is like constitutional crisis territory. And the only reason we're even having this conversation is because uh, John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett switched over to the liberal side in the ruling. Um I would have expected Amy Comey Barrett, at least, to join in with the, um, like you said, not even ideologues, the partisans on the court. Uh, I, I, I guess it's only for the grace of her neoconservative tendencies we even get the opportunity to do anything about this, if Biden and then, does. And then the other crazy fact about this, which I just saw this morning, is that you have DeSantis of Florida and the governors of a bunch of the other states that came out and said, we support what Greg Abbott is doing. And then somebody on Twitter like highlighted all of the states where there are governors who are saying we're with them. It literally maps up perfectly with the Confederacy. It's like, time. it's like they're getting the band back together type stuff. It's time. We're doing it. Let's go. Round two. This time, let's not cancel Reconstruction, okay? No Lincoln <laughs> getting assassinated. We're committing. Um, really, though, like this is the game plan, right? The GOP, at least there are large swaths of the GOP that are just 
unrepentantly fascist and authoritarian at this point. There's no like ambiguity about it, certainly. Um, their rhetoric is very clear. And there are two ways they can go about that, right? Either like Donald Trump wins the election and they dismantle the democracy that we do have, you know, flawed as it is, uh, dismantle the administrative state, prevent any other institution from ruling in a nonpartisan fashion, or like on a state level, they do what they've been trying to do for the past couple of years, like with this wave of blatantly unconstitutional anti-trans legislation, where they basically just like do whatever they want and hope and pray that the Supreme Court is either too busy or too partisan to stop them. And this is like, this is the next step of that. The Supreme Court did step in, now Biden has to like, answer that call. And if you don't do that, then there's just no point in having a federal government, frankly. It, it barely even matters who wins the federal election if you give them permission to just do whatever they want at a state level, because they would then use that power to influence the elections at a state level, um, skew things in their favor, secure them as red states, and eventually like the country's just lost at that point. Yeah. It's very scary. It is. It feels like everything's sort of coming apart. Um, so, so let's switch gears a little bit here. I'm curious, did you watch the uh, Destiny and Ben Shapiro debate? I only saw the end of it where they talked about monogamy versus non-monogamy, I'm afraid. Um, oh, interesting. I can't stand Lex Friedman, so I didn't want to get too far into it. <laughs> well, he says like three words the entire time, so he oh, kind of like- looking at him. Uh, you know. Yeah, well, I, I was going to ask what your thoughts on it were, but you know, I'll just give everybody mine since I watched more of it. I was half asleep, right, but I tried to digest more of it. So I, I thought that uh, on certain issues like Trump versus Biden, I think Destiny did a really great job when talking about uh, January 6th. I think he did a really great job um, they were having a debate around like schooling and the social safety net. I think he did a great job there. But I was actually surprised that around there were a certain number of issues where I think there was like way too much agreement. I think uh, Israel was actually one of them. Um, he disagreed around the edges. You know, he brings up like the West, this illegal settlers in the West Bank, and now he's against that. And but it was it wasn't nearly as much of a, a, a debate as I kind of thought it would be. So you should definitely check it out. I'm actually surprised you haven't uh, you know covered it on your channel yet. Oh yeah, well it's. It was such a long conversation, and I, I, I was, I was wondering about the extent to which they would disagree as well. I, I haven't seen a lot of Destiny's positions, but I catch, you know, whispers on the wind of him having said some like very chauvinistic, like pro-Israel stuff or pro-genocide stuff or whatever. I don't know where he would lean in in terms of debating it. I think that when it comes to conversations like that, though, as time has gone on, the, um, the, the appetite for debate has shifted a lot. Um, since, I don't know, 2017, 18 or whatever, the environment has changed. Ben Shapiro barely does debates anymore, you know? And now they feel like much more of a novelty than a cornerstone of political engagement online. And I wonder if, I mean, especially with people like Lex Friedman, right? That guy is very civility pilled, you know? Like, let's all have a cup of tea and discuss whether or not trans people deserve to be killed or something. Very, very <laughs> like sort of morally detached from the subject being engaged. I wonder if that environment is always going to be a kind of placating force on conversations as severe as like what's going on in, in, in the Gaza Strip, you know? It's it, it like a, you know what I mean, right? It's kind of like a liberal civility politics thing, but it's not even liberal necessarily. It's 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 very institutional. I haven't seen the whole thing. So that's just a, I don't know, a feeling that I have from, from a kind of instinctual vibe check. My gut drives me to this. Yeah, I mean, I would honestly say it was more of a discussion than a debate. I mean, there were definitely points of disagreement, but it felt a little bit more like, a, almost like a, Rogan-esque discussion than it was yeah. a debate. And I'd be curious to know what they felt like going into it, what it would be like. I was, I wonder if like Ben and, and Destiny thought like, no, we're going to be debating or if they thought like, hey, maybe we'll find like 72% agreement on the various issues. It's, uh, it's, I find it really difficult to do a proper debate when there's a, even um, a moderator because Ben Shapiro, mm -hmm. like Ben Shapiro is a, um, 
I don't think he's stupid. Like he can talk fast, uh, but his arguments are very stupid. Like in a in a sensible environment, like you would be shouting at Ben Shapiro. Like he mm -hmm. he he'll try to talk over you. You talk over him louder. That's the essence of debate. Scream at each other, arm wrestle. Who cares? Um, Lex Friedman. You know, it's 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 you sit down at the good boy table. Everyone be nice. Uh, I guess there's just a limit to how far you can go in an environment like that. I think Destiny recently debated. Um, Alex Jones and some other people. Yes, I actually I watched that. Did you watch that? I, I saw parts of it. That was like that. Now that's an environment uh, that cultivates good uh, uh, discursive spirit. You know, that's a that's a good debate environment. I feel. Um, yeah. So with in the my shouting. opinion, he did. He actually did better in in that. And I, again, I'd be curious to know what he thinks, like how he did in each respective debate. But in my opinion, there was much more clear disagreement and differentiation in that debate. And really, honestly, what I would have liked to seen, I don't know if you saw the whole thing or not, but it would have been good to have just Destiny versus Glenn Greenwald. And I think they're actually going to, somebody's making that happen. I, there was some, somebody tweeted about how that's going to happen shortly, but Alex Jones just ruined the whole fucking thing. I mean, he's in there. He's a total idiot. He makes horrendously stupid points. He's, he's loud. Ball. He's obnoxious. He's probably like high as balls on cocaine or whatever the fuck he's on. Lord only knows. And it's like every... 14 minutes, Destiny would come in and say something smart, and then Glenn would say something uh, interesting in response to it. And actually, to my surprise, the Krasenstein bros were not bad. I was kind of amazed by that, because I view them as sort of these, like, meme -y people, <laughs> like, who don't really, like, know anything or care. But they actually did a half-decent job, too. Yeah, like the uh, Davinci twins, you know, just into politics. Uh, um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree, yeah. It, it feels like debate is getting less and less interesting, for me at least, personally, because the right is so um, out of this universe that it, it right. feels like a lot of points can't even be discussed. Because I remember, I remember back in, um, back in like uh, uh, 2019, when I started doing the YouTube thing, even back then, uh, Trump supporters would like earnestly debate the facts of the positions they held about immigration or the economy or whatever else. I'm not saying they were correct, but like they seemed to care. There was some degree of policy wonkery, right? They had their feet planted kind of firmly. Nowadays, it's all moon logic, man. I'm pretty sure the average Republican uh, is like like the borderline least insane starting point is like 9-11 trutherism, flat earth, uh, hollow earth. You know, the, the it feels like there's no ground anymore for reasonable discussion. Policy wonkery. Nobody wants to talk about the economy or what Trump actually did. It's all just like wokeism is infiltrating our schools. It's all, it's like, that's that's the level of engagement now. In an environment like that, debate is more about, I don't know, shouting people down. You can make the points, but past a point, it's just like demonstrating strength, which is what they care about, of course, ultimately. They care about... Uh, being perceived as this, like, uh, you know, force of logic far more, I think, than they do about engaging with any real issue. Yeah. So back in like 2015 and 2016, I had a very, very different approach when it came to Trump supporters, where, you know, you try to see the best. Hey, why do you feel the way you feel? Why do you like him? What is it about it? And then in some instances, you could pick out with some people. Uh, I don't know, they thought he was a little better on trade than Hillary Clinton, who was in favor of all the outsourcing deals and all this stuff. But as time has gone by, now with Trump having, he was president for four years, then we had January 6th, and he attempted to overturn the election. And then here we are today where this dude refuses to go away. And I am 100% doomer-pilled on the people who remain who support Trump because there's been a million of these interviews. You go to the rallies, uh, the Young Turks have done this, where they send people to the rallies to interview these people. And you literally can't find one salient point among them. It is just a complete cultishness, devotion. It's all about emotion and feelings. They're also at the same time, 
like very close-minded and arrogant in their without understanding anything about policy or facts. And so I've been so doomer pilled on them now that I really have no patience left for anybody. Like we were talking, like Alex Jones in that debate. I would have felt like Destiny did where I was face palming. Like, what the fuck are you even doing in this conversation? Like you're Alex not even Jones, engaging. Alex Jones isn't even that far off, I feel, from the median GOP voter at this point. Mm -hmm. Like fully, mm -hmm. like half of the things that he says, just like, oh no, yeah, that's just like standard policy now or like right. that, that's just normal rhetoric i think like the the dnc is also largely responsible for this in terms of um their insistence on sticking to institutional um candidates biden is so like uh moderate centrist uh like i have been in politics for 500 years you know i was born before america was founded he's not going to inspire anywhere near that kind of like um dissident independent leaning like we can all lean into this thing a lot of people i saw this interview in politico literally yesterday there are people who treat donald trump effectively as like a maverick third party candidate despite being the face of the gop and he does to an extent have that energy because despite everyone in the gop bowing to him he doesn't feel like he's beholden to the GOP. He kind of feels like his own force. Um, I, 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 I mean, this is like the eternal cope, right? But I'll say it until I die. Like Bernie would have done so much better on this. There are so many Trump supporters who would have looked at Bernie and if nothing else gone like, you know, he's very clearly not institutional DNC. A lot of them would call him a communist or whatever, whatever. They call everyone that. Um, but I think he could have won over a lot of those independents. And in 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 the face of that now, it's just like if you have even a little bit of distrust for the system, it feels like every institutional force is pulling you over to Trump because the Democrats will be like, well, you don't trust the system. What are what are you? A goddamn what do you don't trust the system? You 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 loser, you fucking lunatic, you know? And in that environment, obviously the populists are all gonna run one way. Very yeah, depressing. It, it is because it drives me crazy when people still try to make the argument at this late date that Trump is somehow anti-establishment or some, is, Trump is somehow anti-war. It's like, just look yeah. at the record, follow what's actually happening. And look, I'll admit it's hard for people to follow exactly what's happening because it requires like reading in-depth articles on page 72 of the Washington Post or whatever. But just to give a couple examples off my head, Trump took a million dollars from the predatory payday loan industry for his inauguration. Then he turned around and dropped all the regulations into them, dropped all the court cases into them. Sheldon Adelson gave him literally over $100 million to effectively buy foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East and vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Like the number... and. On war, I don't even need to get into it, over 400% increase in drone strikes, took out General Soleimani illegally, tried to coup Venezuela. Like, we can go on and on here. The but collaboration with the about, Saudis. Yeah, the, exactly. They backed the genocide in Yemen effectively. And he vetoed that bill when it was Bernie and maybe Mike Lee or Rand Paul who tried to get through a bill that said no more support for Saudi Arabia as they genocide Yemen. And they, he vetoed that. So, like, you look at it and it's just like, all you people have who still support him is just feelings. It's just emotions. It's just like, I don't know, he feels vaguely more authentic. And it's like, you got to get past that. Yeah, I, I guess it's about addressing the feelings at the end of the day. Most people, a lib, Republican, whatever, um, I mean... The average voter in, in, in every country is politically incoherent, right? Like following politics is, is, is an insane thing to do. Um, and most people can't do it to the extent that they like really know what's going on, I guess. People are following vibes for the most part. And the vibes that Republicans are following right now are like um, deeply cursed, cursed vibes. I guess the, 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 the temptation is to beat them on the facts, which is easy because they're wrong. Um, and the hard thing to do is to look at where they're coming from and wonder what like underlying emotions emotional impulses are driving them to so readily believe things that are obviously empirically untrue that could be like fact-checked in a second disproven and once you can get at that i don't know maybe there's more 
there's more truth to be bet in the middle. It's another one of my big criticisms of Biden, leaving aside anything policy related, right? Say that Biden was identical policy wise. The man just can't go up there and do a speech the way Trump can. Trump would go out there every day and say, again, total bullshit, but he projected a vision, an image of the future. Biden occasionally does speeches and they're not really special. He's nowhere near as charismatic as Obama. So even compared to the predecessor, like he's, that's not, you know, a point to his favor. And there's not really a clear vision forward. If you ask a liberal in this country, like what is what is being done to make America better or make America great? The most they could do, I think, is rattle off some like minor, like institutional um, incremental adjustments to this, that, the other, that like maybe they'll pass after they means test it into oblivion one day. And people just aren't sold on that. You ask a, a Donald Trump and he'll just say whatever. He'll just be, yeah, we're going to cure. I was about to say we're going to cure cancer, but Biden was the one who said that. That was basically, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're going to go to the moon, Space Force, you know, we're going to be- We're going to be number one. Make number America one. Again. We're, we're going to be great. It's going to be tremendous. It's Yeah, and, and unironically, like that's the level of like dumb optimism, I think, that you need to pull people along in an era where everyone's so hopeless. And Biden can't really do that because he's ancient and brittle and, uh, you know, moderate. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe in 2028 we'll get. I I feel like if 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 the country survives, we might get something good in 2028 because the need for a populist candidate on the left is so overwhelming that it past the point even the DNC can't ignore it. So let's switch gears here. Let me ask you about weed. There was uh, you and TJ Kirk were kind of going weed. back and forth there. He um he made a video. I saw his video uh, in response to you, and then I saw some of your response to him but I just want to get it straight from the source here. So what exactly is the disagreement? What's the point of contention when it comes to marijuana? Because I'd imagine on the actual policy, you guys agree, you think it should be legalized. You think people should have the freedom to, to do it if they want to, et cetera. What's the actual crux of the disagreement? Yeah, no policy disagreement. It's just, um, I don't know if you've experienced this. This might be like a cultural thing. I, I literally went to university in Humboldt County, the weed capital before weed was made like broadly legal in California, um, where... Uh, there are a lot of people who are alcoholics, and if you point out to them that they're dependent on alcohol, they kind of own it to an extent. Like, it's not good, but they own it. But I have met so many people who are hopelessly addicted to marijuana. And by addicted, I mean, like, they smoke it all the time. Like, I know there's, like, a neurochemical difference in how the brain processes alcohol versus marijuana. I'm more talking about, like, socially addicted. Like, they just use it constantly. Um, and and they they cope about it like crazy. They just won't admit it. I think there's there, there was like a line given about marijuana from South Park of all places that I think was and always is really salient, which is just um, that marijuana can make you feel happy doing less. And that's a bad thing that it can in, induce kind of like complacency or laziness. Um, and I just, I know a lot of people, this, maybe this is also like a queer community overlap thing, because I know this is like a big issue with like, fucking trans people or whatever, but they have negative feelings and rather than deal with them, they just spend a bunch of money on weed and it drains their finances and they don't really like move forward or deal with anything. And it makes me kind of sad. And I've, I've noticed that people get really defensive when I talk about this stuff. So as a response to them getting defensive, I get aggressive. And then just in invariably, it's like a shit flinging contest between me and my community where there are like three people in my chat who are arguing that actually you can't get addicted to weed. It's not possible. And then I I, I call them a bunch of uh, slurs and, you know, just moves forward from there. Yeah, I mean, I think that the issue kind of boils down to uh, how people feel about the term addiction, right? And I'm going to have a little bit of a hot take here and I'm curious what you think of it. Mm -hmm. I think quote unquote addiction is only bad if it has obvious negative consequences. So in other words, if somebody wakes up every day and they smoke weed every day, all day, but they take care of their business, they take care of their kids, they're happy, et cetera. 
I see no problem with that. If somebody's addicted to weed and they smoke it a million times a day and then it makes it so they don't go to work or they didn't pick up their kids or, you know, they didn't feed the baby or whatever. Like in that scenario, it's like, yeah, you have an addiction and there should be a negative connotation associated with that word addiction in that context. So it's almost like we need two different words. One for somebody who uses all the time but is completely functional and has no problems versus somebody who uses all the time and it leads to negative consequences. You know what I'm saying? Because like sometimes people just use drugs as a coping mechanism, but there's really no downside to the coping mechanism because sometimes you just have to cope. You know what I mean? Do you see the distinction I'm making there? No, no, for sure. Yeah, the, the, the main problem, I guess, is that people who have an addiction or dependency are really bad sometimes at knowing whether or not it's having a negative effect on their life. Um, because the brain, like, the, like humans are like rationalization machines, right? Like if a person is experiencing negative consequences, because you can ask like an alcoholic, right? It's like, oh, are you experiencing negative consequences from being drunk every day? And they're like, hell no, I'm having a great time. Um, there's a lot of that, right? I mean, that is the, the effect chemically, I guess, that it will have. So it's it's more of an introspection thing, I think. Uh, like the coping thing, though, I completely agree with. It's kind of like um, playing a lot of video games, right? Like video game addiction can ruin people's lives. Like I, you can be addicted to anything, I guess. But like just taking video games, um, you know, a person can be like uh, can can like throw their life away. You know, just uh, not doing anything, play with it, whatever. Or you can just have a lazy Sunday, play a lot of games that day, and be fine. Like that was just like a, a day for you where you got to be lazy and do whatever. Um, there's not as much of a chemical influence effect with the game stuff, I guess. So maybe there's a difference in terms of rationalization. I just want people to be happy at the end of the day. I want people to be happy and productive. Um, I know a lot of people get kind of like locked into a negative spiral and they only realize it when they're really far down and it's difficult to do anything about it. So I guess I encourage a critical um, attitude about that sort of thing, but not any like, I don't know, drug war era, like, you know, there's no reefer madness uh, fear-mongering here going on. I, I just um, I just want people to be happy. And there's just a lot of sad stoners out there. And I guess, I so I'll, I'll just ask this. Do you think that in some instances, chronic usage actually genuinely, sincerely helps some people where, you know, if they're not chronically using, they may have irritability problems, anger problems, can't get their shit taken care of, but if they are a chronic user, it might actually help them in their life, both literally and also uh, mentally? Yeah, pain management would be a pretty good example of that to an extent, because that would also have, I know THC doesn't have the same psychological effect um, as as just like smoking weed regularly, but yeah, to, to an extent. I guess it's just people are really tough at making that call for themselves, right? So yeah. in, in, a, in a vacuum, absolutely. But I know that the majority of people who would make that claim about any chemical substance about themselves would be coping or or would not know what they had lost. Like maybe they thought that they were just like mellowing out a bit, but in reality, there were like things in their life falling behind, skills they could have obtained or opportunities they missed that they'll never know about. And it's really tough to know, I guess, without a third party perspective. But in the abstract, like totally possible, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. So now let's talk a little bit about, uh, I know you and uh, Jenk and Anna sort of went at it a little while ago. Uh, how, where are you on them now? Because I always feel like when it comes to this uh, liberal slash left-wing uh, content creator uh, group we're in, whatever it might be, as however loosely affiliated we are, it always feels like there's, um, you know, there's 97% agreement, but nobody ever talks about the 97% agreement or highlights those. And then whenever there's a 3% disagreement, it blows up to the point where people start hating each other. So are, are you, where are you on them at the moment? 
Yeah, I still think Anna, I'm personally hurt by this. I got along pretty well with Anna and I felt like she said some really dumb shit and I tried DMing her about it, but it just didn't happen. And then it all like spiraled into a public thing and she was quite mean. And I'm also obviously quite mean, so I can't, you know, I can't, I can't add, like feign wounded indignation over that. But um, look, I mean, look, I, I ha in the absence of dumb shit, like Jenk and Anna have done and said a lot of incredibly good things for progressive and populist causes. So I'm not gonna... You're right about the 97% thing. You know, usually when people link me any content from any person who otherwise agrees with me, it's because they know I will disagree with it. I'm not going right. to watch a video yeah. from them that where, where I just like nod my head and go, oh, yeah, of course. That's that's just not how it works. So I'm always um, disproportionately exposed to negativity. At the same time, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being critical of people who are generally on your side. My, the problem with me being critical, I guess, is that I, have no self-control and I am generally just a kind of like argumentative person. So even if even if my feelings towards a person are like largely positive, I could watch a video of theirs and go, ah, you dumb fuck, ah, you piece of shit. You know, um, this this is just, I, I guess, like a character flaw of mine. I try to smooth things over at DMs, though that didn't really work out with Jenk and Anna, obviously. Uh, look, the election's coming up. Honest to God, at this point right now, with the stakes that we're facing, like I just, I, I have no room in my heart and my soul for any any bickering over stuff like that. I say, knowing fully well what a future segment in this very conversation is going to be. Um, so the, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wish them all the best, sincerely. You know, I saw Jenk in, uh, in D.C. when I went over there to uh, talk with Rokana and do some stuff for my canvassing org, not my canvassing org, uh, Progressive Victory, the, the people that I'm friends with. And... Um, he uh, he he was quite steely in person. He, he didn't want to like uh, talk with me very much, which I was uh, I was rather sad about. He's such a big bombastic guy. I wanted to like chat with him and get drinks. Yeah, I think um, so. I I have I know Jank, and he is like fiercely protective of Anna. He's so, so loyal. He's he's he like feels, a yeah, mastiff, if, you know. If he feels Anna was wronged in any way, that I think honestly he'd be a bigger dick in that scenario than if you were just mean to him. Like he'd be more okay with you being mean to him than him, than you being mean to Anna, basically. So that's probably where he's coming from. Because normally in person he is uh, more outgoing and agreeable uh, than probably what you were able to see. So let me ask this then, because from my from my perspective, and I didn't follow all the things in, in and out, but I know that there were some disagreements on crime and some disagreements on trans stuff. Uh, but how do you balance as as a creator? Because I have to I have to struggle with this balance too, and I think everybody in our place does. How do you balance? trying to have solidarity with people who mostly agree and good faith while also trying to like, you know, do your job, which sometimes is calling people out and being like the lone voice of reason where you feel like everybody else is getting this wrong and I got to chime in and I got to like correct the record here. How do you balance those things? Because from my perspective, those things are absolutely at odds. You could either have solidarity and be like good faith and interpret everything everybody around you says in the best possible light, or you can, hey, let, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the call out thing here. I think this person is wrong, even though we agree on most things. And, you know, also, by the way, hand in hand with that, if you do it, it's like a lot of people are going to watch that. A lot of people are going to click on that. A lot of people are going to like that because it's like, ooh, juicy. It's drama. Oh, and yeah. It really gets people going. So how do you balance those things? Because I try to do this too. Like last thing I'll say is like, for example, remember when you went, this was years ago now, but you went on Tim Pool and you... um you debated Charlie Kirk and I had debated Charlie Kirk before that too at some Politicon event, but- mm -hmm. oh, um, I watched that, I remember. Yeah, like I made a point of, okay, Vosh destroys him here and Vosh destroys him here. So now let me do segments where I'm like, Vosh is absolutely destroying him 
And that creates like a positive feedback loop where my, my fans look at you, your fans look at me. They're like, oh, this is great. This is a, a good environment. It's kind of like what the conservatives do, except they push bad things and we push good things. And it's like, that's one way to get attention. But the other way is like, this fucking asshole's wrong about this, this, and this. And let's, let me call him out. So how do you balance those things? Well, I, I I guess I don't. I'm really bad at it. I have um, as much as I try to compensate for it, like intellectually, like think, like you you know use my brain to rein me in a little bit. Um, I generally don't have a good relationship with a lot of people on the left. I'm very combative. You know, this is mostly like well. There are parts of this that I definitely think are my fault. So it's not something that I feel very entitled to complain about, but it does give me the impression sometimes when I'm there with my stream chat, you know, and we're all just watching videos, it gives me the impression that there's not much solidarity for me to like actually ruin or many bridges for me to actually burn. I think that what you what you, what you spoke to there um, about like, um, oh, he destroyed this person or oh, he did so great here. Like that stuff is not only, um, for one, it's good content. For two, like people like seeing that like cross creator hype. Um, it's also really effective in terms of solidarity building. It's also just, it's just good politics, frankly. You're right about the balance between being good faith and being like um, sort of uh, uh, good about solidarity building. I feel like this didn't used to be as difficult because back in the 1960s or whatever, you know, uh, we didn't have everything being put online. If somebody right. said some dumb shit, like oh, whatever, like, oh, he said that she said that he said, okay, what, like, let's go march, you know? But nowadays, everyone is subjected to everything that everyone else believes. And invariably, especially in a live streaming format, people are like, hey, look at this dumb shit. And even if you look at it and then go, eh, that's pretty dumb, yeah, and then move on. Now there are like 4,000 people who are watching and that's their first impression of that person. But you, so like that's a lot of negativity you've set up at the beginning. I don't know. I think that like this, this is something that I've always tried to be better about and I keep failing at it, which is just understanding beyond any individual criticism, the broader stakes at hand, because I talk about other people failing to do this. So when I myself then go over a video, um, from say, for example, a person I'm on good terms with who I really like, and then make like uh, you know oblique comparisons to Nazi rhetoric. Uh, you know, in, in, in retrospect, it's like okay, it's not that I think anything that I'm saying is indefensible, right? Like I, I love making comparison to Nazis. I'll, I'll do that all day. But in the broader context of what's going on here, you know, is there not like another way this could have been handled? And I mean, there, there almost always is. This is something about which you've always been better. And it's one of the reasons I think that I've gotten along with you over the years. It's because in spite of any like um, individual disagreements, uh, you've always had your feet planted super firmly. So I, I respect that about you, frankly. I mean, look, I, I have some tricks that I employ in order to not sort of get involved in that negative feedback loop. And one of them is I literally, it, it, okay, if you do a segment where I know it's going to be good and I'm going to agree with it, I'll watch the whole thing. If you do one where it's like, you know, you're coming after me or whatever, I just won't watch it. And then I'll hear, you know, people say, oh, he said this, this or that. And I get like a sense of what you may have said. But if I don't hear you actually say things that I might dislike or be offended by, then it literally is out of sight, out of mind. You know what I'm saying? So that's one of the things I do. And that's why, you know, creators fight all the time, but they don't really see me fighting often. And it's just because I, I don't see anything to fight over because I'm actively avoiding when somebody says something about me that I think is going to be unfair, I'm not going to agree with. And so that's one thing that I do. But now, yeah, let's get into Israel now, because there's, I'm, I'm convinced there is way more agreement that we have. Yeah, I'd, ra I'd rather not get into Israel. I feel like the Mossad wouldn't let me in uh, at this point. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to go there either, ever. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's start with this. I I've seen some of your segments on Israel. I agree with almost everything you said. When you look at it, I'll, I'll tell you what my solution is, or attempted solution, and then you could tell me what you think of it. 
I mean, right off the bat, if I was Joe Biden, the first thing I'd do is uh, cut off the weapons going to Israel, cut off the money. Um, I would do a condemnation through the UN where I tr we try to present uh, you know, a unified front where it's like literally the whole world is disagreeing with you and what you're doing here. And then the last thing, I, if all that fails, which I don't know if it would, I actually think it might work if you do that. Um, the last thing I would do is effectively like state-sanctioned BDS. So like blockade, embargo, try to stop goods from getting to Israel to put economic pressure on them so that they stop slaughtering everything that moves in Gaza. That's my approach to it. I'm not in favor of like sending in SEAL Team 6 to murder Netanyahu or Ben Gavir. Uh -huh. I think that's bad. <laughs> but um, I think that that's the approach that I'd be most comfortable with. Do you agree with, with uh, my take there? If Kyle was emperor of the world, would, would Emperor Vosh do a similar thing? Well, uh, uh, disregarding your... Uh, liberal take that we shouldn't send in SEAL Team 6. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think like a lot of this is a precedent thing because at this point, the Biden administration is pretty much neck deep in it. So any change in policy now is going to be really difficult to navigate politically. Like they're still committing to this. Just the other day I saw the, um, I think it was the White House press secretary who was discussing the specifics of a, what seems to be a war crime that was caught on video. One of like 5,000 at this point, you know, but like uh, some guy being shot while waving a white flag. Uh, but but he was talking about like the details of, um, well, I don't think that was a this or that, which means that these people are getting like prepped beforehand and like, okay, here's the war crimes we're defending or minimizing today. Uh, in an environment like this, any change in policy is really rough. I think the the issue is that like, I feel like, I feel like Netanyahu is fucking insane. Like, I think that he is more likely than Russia to do the like, fuck it and the world hit the red button uh, bullshit you know, more likely than North Korea, completely insane. I think that like, I, this comes across as kind of chauvinistic, right? I agree with everything that you said. I worry that Israel would double down on everything they're doing right now. And in the absence of American support would just like, it would, it would like galvanize and further radicalize the extremist right-wing faction into doing worse versions of what they're doing now. I wonder if there's some way of like, not regime change necessarily, as fun as that is to think about, but like it, there has to be a moderate wing or people with doubts in the Knesset that you could appeal to as a way of driving a wedge. Like Netanyahu's very unpopular, but not for the right reasons. He, right. If he's to be replaced, he can't just be replaced with a more effective genocider. I don't right. know what kind of pressure you could exact, what like deals or or incentives you could put forward. Because right now, like it seems like nothing is selling. The uh, Arab peace deal, what the Saudis are arguing for, like uh, Netanyahu's not picking up the phone. Biden apparently had his call screened for like a month from Netanyahu, just fully not answering the phone. Past a point, like it's, it, it, they're essentially like a rogue state. They're borderline a rogue state now. They're, they're acting indistinguishably from the way we would expect like Iran or, or North Korea to act when confronted with American pressure, except, you know, it's Israel. We built them. We gave them everything. They don't get to act that way with us. Whatever outcome, it, it's, it's about more than the peace and security of the Gaza Strip at this point. You know, Israel poses a threat to the entire Middle East, not just with the Samson option, like nuclear salvo, like end game scenario, I guess, but also because as long as they're there acting that way, there are like a dozen other conflicts in the region that can never stabilize fully. Like uh, the Houthis, Hezbollah, the, all the Iranian-backed uh, proxies in Iraq and, and Syria. There are like so many like micro conflicts there that are all kind of thrown into disarray purely because they have Israel to point to and go, hey, look, look at that, you know? We can do whatever we want, you know? Islamic militia shit, yeah, fuck it. Like, look at Israel, you know? We are fully radicalized. 
maybe maybe some kind of UN joint peace keeping force in the Gaza Strip. You know, hey, look, you have a bunch of refugees crowded around the south of the Strip. Maybe we could have like, um, you know, an international UN force go down there to like see off the refugees. But in reality, they're protecting them from bombs because Israel couldn't bomb the UN. Well, they have before, but they can't bomb them too much, you know? <laughs> That's really where we're at. It's like, they yes. bomb them, but all right, maybe they won't nuke them? I don't know. <laughs> my understanding, and I, I want—I actually want your opinion on this because I could be totally wrong. All The, the Nazis are like a flame on Twitter right now trying to pretend to be pro-Palestinian uh, to yeah, promote anti-Semitism. Andrew Tate, Fuentes. just the other day. Fuentes has been doing it. Yeah, Fuentes, uh, there are a bunch of like gold checkmark orgs. Andrew Tate the other day on a tweet with like 10 million uh, views was saying like, hey, they lied about Palestine. Maybe they lied about World War II. Just saying, look oh. into it. Uh, so like the whole, and he's been he's been doing the fake Muslim thing too. So I guess he's, he's like throwing to that crowd. But um, it, my understanding of why we back Israel the way we do, besides the fact that there's so much like rhetoric built up in, the accusation of anti-Semitism as it like an inflammatory denunciation is also because we use them as a wedge against Iran because we really don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapons program, which makes me think that we could replace Israel or at least our fervent support of Israel with diplomacy with Iran, which is why I've been pushing for that so hard as well. That as ha it's always been my take that I really dislike how cuddly the U.S. is, not just with Israel, but also with these, these uh, Salafist extremist Sunni factions in the Middle East, like the, you know, the Saudis are, that the ideology of Saudi Arabia is way more extreme, no matter how much they're trying to do like the veneer of secularizing right now. They're the ones who are spreading radical Islam and, and you know, these radical mosques and, and Islamism. It's out of that ideology that you get uh, ISIS, that you get Al-Qaeda, that you get these like global jihadist networks. For all of my problems with the theocratic government of Iran, the Shias don't have the global caliphate ambitions that the extremist Sunnis do. So and, I totally agree. Iran is so much more moderate. Like, like Absolutely. We, and the young evil empire shit. Yes. Iran is like an actual country. Saudi Arabia is not a country. Saudi Arabia is a tourist destination run by slaves and dictators. Like it's not a real country. It's, 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 it's like Dubai. It's not a real city, you know? Iran is a real country. They have like an actual civil right. society there. It's insane. And you're right about the terrorism angle too. Most of the like, um, most of the, the ambitions of like the, uh, the, the, the extremist Islamic militias backed by Iran are like regional independence or, exactly. or like uh, uh, religious extremist movements. Mm -hmm. Whereas you look at like Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia, like a Saudi Aramco literally has like uh, PowerPoints where they're like, here's how we're going to coup African elections to get them to buy more cars that have like, uh, you know, poor gas mileage. So we can continue to sell oil to them even as the, the rest of the world gets into green energy. And it's like, you know, it's shit, you know, um, true yeah. evil empire shit. It's, it's no surprise that all those um, Iran-backed militias are angry. They have every right to be. Yeah, so um, if all the things that I laid out don't work to try to, try to rein Israel in, because I do think there's a possibility, even if we do all of those things, uh, you just see a total Game of Thrones, complete heel turn from Israel where they're like, well, now we'll, you know, our top ally will be China. Billions and like, must die. And, and China will be okay with them. Like all of a sudden their position on Palestine will nominally flip where they'll be like, oh, Israel is just defending themselves or whatever. And like you know, you bring them into bricks or whatever. Like, you, you could have a total realignment type situation if we put pressure on them and it doesn't work. But, like, the last thing you could do, which I think, honestly, if we lived in a world that made sense, would almost be the first thing we'd do, is I think we should have legit 
war crimes charges, not just for Netanyahu, but also I'd say for the leaders of Hamas who orchestrated October 7th and killed massive numbers of civilians. So I would hopefully try them, lock them up, both leaders of Hamas and Netanyahu and whoever else was making the decisions at the top of the Israeli government, which led to literally 12,000 children dying, 28,000 innocent civilians. A lot of them. And then after that, what I would do is, um, and this is not a good solution, but it's just the least bad solution that I could think of, is you have to address the root problem, which is the occupation. So you make a deal with the Palestinian Authority to do a two-state solution. They temporarily control, and then eventually you have elections where you have an independent Palestinian state and an independent Israel. I know this isn't the one-state solution thing. I'm just talking short-term. I know a lot of lefties uh, support one-state solution over two-state solution. I'm thinking in the short-term here how we deal with the facts on the ground as they are right now. So I would have an independent Palestinian state and independent Israel, and you get rid of the war criminals, and then you have the UN peacekeeping troops there to try to prevent anything from exploding. But if we don't do something like you and I are discussing right now, I mean, we're watching this thing spiral out of control massively. You got bombing, the U.S. is bombing in Iraq and Syria, and Shia militias in Syria and Iraq are bombing 150 times. They're attacking our bases. And then you got the Houthi situation in Yemen. And it's just, it's all spiraling out of control and something needs to be done. But I don't, all I see is Biden publicly wagging his finger at Netanyahu, but then privately it's a total green light and here's more money and here's more weapons. Yeah, and and it's the it's the slightest finger wag too. It is the weakest. Like the press secretary is out there defending Israel every day now. Um, like every like you see all these dem press conferences too, where someone in the audience starts shouting about justice for for Gaza, and they get have to like be hauled out by security. It's got to be like that every day till the election. I don't think Democrats realize, like, I think a lot of them genuinely believe that this will all blow over. Like, they're delusionally convinced that this is just another, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, it's bad, it looks bad, but, uh, you know, by election time, no one will care. I, I just, I don't think that's true, especially not with young people. There, are, There's literally millions of young American progressives and leftists whose, like, wake-up moment on American empire is going to be this, and they're going to carry this with them their whole lives. It's like the Iraq war. Like, America right, never yeah. forgot the scars of the Iraq war. Leaving aside all the deaths we caused over there, in terms of, like, avoiding that, for, for like, never letting it happen again, that still influences policy today. Now everyone has to come across as an isolationist, you know? Nobody want like, there's, there's no American appetite for a real boots-on-the-ground war anymore, even 20 years after the... Um, the Iraq war. People aren't going to forget this. I, and as, by the way, as to what you said, the two state versus one state solution, one state solution is not possible right now. There's no fucking way. Right, uh, yeah. they, there would be race riots every day. Like the, mm -hmm. the Palestinians would be like stoned and hung from lampposts, you know, and, and honestly, it'd go both ways. The, yeah. the hatred is near infinite. So the yeah, charts. we need yeah. like a, a Kosovo situation. We just need a bunch of blue hats, like guarding, a, you know, a, a, a line uh, between you know Israel and a tiny breakaway Palestine or something, I, I I don't know. It's it's really rough. There's no good solution to this. It honestly feels like the best case scenario right now, realistically, is that in spite of all like evidence to the contrary, Egypt opens up their border and just lets the Palestinians in to live as like second class citizens for the rest of their life. Like that yeah. almost seems like a better outcome than what might happen. I mean, I think the most likely scenario is just kind of the slow continuation of exactly what we're seeing. North Gaza has been wiped off the map. It will eventually be resettled by Israel, I believe. They're trying to make that be the case in the South. It's a little more up in the air how much they'll succeed on that front. Very possible. At some point, there is some sort of a deal. I know Israel proposed to Egypt, we'll wipe out all of your debt if you allow us to have the tent city in the Sinai Desert with Palestinians. I do agree with you. I think the most likely scenario is just the continuation of the status quo where we literally did just witness and are continuing to witness an ethnic cleansing, a genocide, and you know, 
forced relocation, even though they try to frame it in this flowery way as if it's like a humanitarian solution. It's really, really ugly. And I, you know, I said this before, and this is a somewhat controversial statement, but I stand by it that the way the Israeli military acts makes the U.S. military look like Noam Chomsky. Like oh, we're, we're like we're we're like angels compared to them. I know it, it, it's full on like it's like it's like Russian behavior where you know the Russian army has no discipline, so they're just like posting videos online of them like doing filling mass graves or whatever. And meanwhile, IDF TikTok is a thing. They're literally like bragging and dancing as they bomb, like they they reduce entire uh, city blocks to rubble. And I, I just know for a fact, if nothing else, like leaving aside, and the U.S. military, of course, done monstrous things. But just in terms of pure troop discipline, I'm pretty sure that if like if there were any U.S. soldiers posting shit like that to TikTok in some kind of current on the ground uh, conflict, they would be like dropped in a river by their CO like overnight. Like that, <laughs> at the very least, like optics, you know. Um, uh, not to mention the indiscriminate killing. At the very least, like American airstrikes are probably on the more like restrained side. Uh, when it comes to like you know uh, specificity of target, whereas Israel's just like now nah, you know whatever, a uh, fucking the whole city. Let's go. Yeah, uh, that is what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Which of course, mind you, we enable and abet like by defending them. So functionally, that's yeah, also on course. us to a large extent. Yeah, that's true. I'm just saying the damage done throughout the scope of the entire war on terror. It's like there was a lot of damage done. It was terrible. We had torture, all that stuff, etc. But in such a short time frame. All of the death and devastation and complete non-concern for civilian lives. I mean, it's just, I, again, I've never seen anything like it. It's something special, yeah. All right, so uh, now let's get to the to the fun part that I'm sure everybody's waiting oh, for. Oh, no. So, now, look, I didn't, we're actually in a really good place because I didn't watch any of the things you said. So I'm not coming in with any, like, baggage of, like, how dare you say X, Y, or Z about me. I literally don't know what you said. I just know you disagreed with the statement I made. So I made the incredibly based and true comment the other day. Mm -hmm. The incredibly... Honest, it is hyperbolic. I'm, I'll grant you that. I fully expected some incoming fire. Based true and hyperbolic, yeah. I didn't necessarily expect it from you. Um, I said, quote, the Houthis are correct when talking about um, the attempted blockade of ships going to Israel. And the point I was trying to make, and I tried to make this clear in the video, perhaps I failed in doing it, is not that uh, Shia Islamism is based and uh, let's all praise Allah together and join <laughs> the Houthis or whatever. The point is more, in a world that made sense, you would have the U.S. and the U.N., like they would actually be having the conversation now about maybe we should limit trade to Israel in order to try to put pressure on them to stop them doing a genocide. That's the point. I understand that it comes across as perhaps a broader defense of the Shia Houthis. I certainly didn't mean it in that way, but I know it was hyperbolic and it sounded like that was the point. Yeah, no. So I I agree with what you just said. Um, the main, so fully right. Like, um, I'm not generally like a big sanctions guy, but Israel has the food and money. Okay, they'll they'll survive. Like they they can they can withstand economic deprivation. Their civilians aren't going to starve. Um, the, the, so leaving aside the concern of like effectiveness, because I just I don't think the Houthis what they're doing would would be effective. Um, it, the main issue I have is I am like. And I seem to disagree with everyone on this, by the way. Like, I, I don't know any, like, leftist who agrees with me on this. But I am, like, a, um, like, unironic exceptionalist when it comes to the miracle of modern maritime trade. Because if you if you introduce any disruptions in the trade process, not only do you have, you essentially force civilian ships around Africa, but you also increase, like, shipping cost time, uh, the number of freight ships needed to keep a continuous flow of goods and insurance costs, and all of that makes it much more expensive to trade, and it leads to, like, really disproportionately negative effects 
for poorer countries that get a lot of their grain imported. Like over here in America, maybe I guess the, the effects are like, well, shipping costs get a bit more. But like I know, for example, Sudan hasn't been able to get humanitarian aid for over a month now because of the Houthi blockade, because their ports are being blocked. It, it, like the the route they were taking like isn't accessible anymore to the civilian ships. Um, and then in a lot of countries that import um, great. Uh, I, I don't have a list in my head, but I, I remember looking at like relative lists of like countries and the price per amount. I think I remember reading that it could potentially lead to like increases in cost of shipping certain types of food by over 30%. There's, so this is this is like policy wonkery on my part. I just really like international maritime trade. To me, it's like sacrosan. Like attacking it under any circumstances would be like attacking, I don't know, like the the like telecommunication satellite network where it's 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 like an unironic miracle of humanity that has to be protected. I, I think that my, the problem that I have, I guess, is that a lot of a lot of the criticisms that I levied were framed in a way that gave the impression that my issues were with things that weren't actually the case, I guess. Or, or, or it came across as me thinking like, oh, Israel's bad, but not that bad. In this case, though, it's purely just me being like institutionally um, supportive of that Ability, I guess. I don't know if I'm doing a good job defending it. it. It comes across as so trite in the face of the genocide Israel's committing. But then you think like, you know, Israel's committed um, uh, like 30,000 people dead now, and it will be more. But what would like one famine in Sudan lead to? You know, probably way more that wouldn't get as much media attention. So it's just, that's just something I'm, I'm kind of cautious about. Yeah, no, I mean, I think your concerns are legitimate. I think that's a totally fair argument. I think that any impacts that are happening on other countries because of the actions of the Houthis. I think it's deplorable. I think it should stop immediately. And I covered, there were a few times where the Houthis stopped ships and it was like there was an Israeli billionaire who was a part owner of the ship, but the ship was going somewhere else and the ship had nothing to do with Israel. And in a scenario like that, it's like, okay, this is like stupid Bush League stuff where you say what you're trying to do is stop ships from getting to Israel, but this is just like, it really has nothing to do with that. You're just like wrongly doing the thing that you said you were going to do. And so I think all of that is completely fair. I agree with all of it. Um, the final point I would make is just to, like, just stop the bombing, right? Because one of the things that the Houthis did is when we had that uh, temporary ceasefire, most of what they were doing stopped because they said, we'll stop when you guys have a ceasefire. And if there's a permanent ceasefire, this thing is over. They'll stop doing it. But the thing that annoys me is the reaction of Biden in the U.S. where it's like this big macho man dick swinging like, we'll show you who's boss. And, and then they bomb the Houthis, they bomb Yemen proper, and then the Houthis ramp up what they're doing. And it's like, wait, even according to Biden's own goals, this is the opposite of what he wanted to happen. They shut down the entire trade route after the U.S. bombed back because now the whole area is a war zone. So I guess like when you look at it, to me, Occam's razor is, I agree with all your criticisms, criticisms, but I would say Occam's razor is just like, stop the fucking bombing and then let's get past this. Cool, that, well, that I agree with. I guess the question for me would be, and this is, this is like, I guess, the grim reality of the situation, right? Because this isn't the answer that I want either. In an environment where the Biden administration just flatly is not doing a ceasefire or, or pushing for a ceasefire at all, um, and it's between allowing the Houthis to continue doing that or stopping them, I guess my argument would be, even if you have an incredibly corrupt police force that's like, I don't know, allowing a, a gang to like murder and rape a bunch of people, you wouldn't want them to not go after like another petty criminal, I guess. Like you, you would, well, like it's, it's not a matter of consistency, even if they aren't doing the best solution and dealing with all of it, I would still want them to go after the, well, 
even then it's a matter of effectiveness. Like when has bombing the Houthis ever stopped them? I guess my I mean, understanding- yeah, Saudi Arabia did it for a decade. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck I, all to show for it. <laughs> I know we have better bombs and better intel. So maybe there's stuff we can do that they can't, but I don't know. It, 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 you're, you're right ultimately that it does come down to stability. And this is this is like a broader Israel thing too. There's no There's no amount of military might outside of like, flatly just nuking a country that can stop insurgency. Like we've learned this every time this happens over the past couple of decades. We couldn't fight the Taliban. They immediately took Afghanistan over. We can't clear Syria, uh, Iraq. We, you know, we, we could barely fight ISIS. And a lot of that was because ISIS was hated by the population they occupied too, which helped a lot. They weren't being like housed or sheltered the same way the Taliban were because, you know, ISIS is an insane death cult and the Taliban are not quite that bad. The Houthis effectively control the important parts of Yemen. So, you know, outside of just glassing the place, which I don't think is an acceptable policy position, I don't really know what could be done to stop the insurgency there. I don't know if you can bomb was, a region into stability. It, it was really interesting because we were just getting to the point where Saudi Arabia and the Houthis were calming tensions and sort of coming to a tentative agreement. Because what happened was the Houthis bombed the Saudi oil fields. And that's when Saudi Arabia kind of had a wake-up call and they were like, our bombing them is not accomplishing anything. There's just people starving in Yemen and, you know, we're, we're killing massive numbers of people. And so they had just kind of found st some stability. And then, and then the U.S. jumps in and is like, I know we were urging restraint on the part of Saudi Arabia before, but now we're going to go ahead and start bombing the Houthis. And it's just like, it's all such a mess, man. Look, at the end of the day, I think it's a moot point because I would say it shouldn't, be, it shouldn't have to be the Houthis doing something like this, which I admit they're doing incorrectly. It should be the U.N., who's trying to find a way to put pressure on Israel to get them to stop. And the U.S. should be doing it, but of course they're not doing it. So Yeah, I think a U.S. blockade of Israel would be based in red pill. I mean, we have a whole carrier fleet right there, a proper blockade. Too, and we could do know. it right, and we could do it properly. We could oh, do it yeah, properly. 100%. Not, yeah, well, the correct ships going through, not a concern right. in the world. I mean, it's, it's a U.S. carrier group. There's literally nothing better. I... Um, yeah, it's it's such a grim situation. It feels really, well, not selfish, I guess. It feels kind of myopic to look at all of this in the broader context of the of the 2024 election, because you know that if Donald Trump wins, he's gonna he's gonna go in there and he's like his first you know decree as president is gonna be like no more wokeness. We're killing all the Palestinians and the the, the crowd it's gonna, cheers. It's gonna be so bad. It's gonna be <laughs> so bad. Oh, he's gonna. You're right. He's gonna greenlight. And then I think they're literally just waiting and biding time because they think. He'll come in just like he did with the embassy in Jerusalem. Just green light. You do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, it's this. Uh, this is like an actual argument against globalism, which is that every evil country on earth wants Trump to win because they know he'll like them. Um, we know with Russia, Saudi Arabia is the big one. Massively, they love Trump. They yep. they fucked with the oil prices to like um, mm -hmm. to 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 hamper Biden's uh, approval ratings. Uh, Israel, where like every other autocratic country we like a, a bolsonaro would have if he was still in power um they all want trump to come you know to 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 be reelected because then he'll enable every single bad thing they do um can you imagine how angry russia must have been that he didn't win in 2020 because you know his shit during the ukraine war would have been so like confused and and like cuz he says like the ukraine war wouldn't have even happened but he also criticized the funding of ukraine but then he also says that like putin's, <laughs> putin's like a genius but he's evil or something like it would have been so incoherent i'm sure they would have loved it i just yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, I'm not feeling very hopeful about politics right now. I have to say, I'm curious how he would have dealt with that because honestly, one of my fears was the opposite as well. That since there was there was RussiaGate and there was so much pressure on him to like, hey man, you're a puppet of Vladimir Putin. So he felt like I got to prove I'm not a puppet of Vladimir Putin. And it's like he might actually 
have been way more hawkish too, which is kind of a scary that, thought as well. That's true. You know? But like in the weird, incoherent, like in, oh, in a course. way that makes everything worse, you know, yes. like, mm -hmm. like he would have said like, here's your guns, go and go and take Moscow. Like he would just some oh. shit that would have like escalated. <laughs> and likewise, there's a very slim possibility. I don't think it's necessarily the case, but there's a slim possibility. He would have been better on uh, Israel and Gaza if he was in charge right now, purely because he would have been so incompetent in defending Israel. He would have like, he like, he wouldn't have done any of this like passive handholding the Bidenman does. And he would have just gone, you know, kill them all. And, and, and it would have like galvanized a lot of people against Israel because orange man is on their side, you know, because a lot yeah. of people who are, who are Zionists are these like snooty New York liberals, um, who, who are like progressive up until it affects them. Or, or, you know, like the, you know, the white gay phenomena. I grew up next to West Hollywood. I'm very familiar with this, where there's, you know, it's like very slightly progressive, but a fucking fascist, the nanosecond that one thing they're not good on comes up. Yeah, it reminds me of the guy who Jenk was debating with on TYT, Ben Glebe, I think his name is. Ben. He's like a progressive, but then on second, it does, it's Israel. It's, they're just defending themselves. It's a hunt for Hamas. And it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, man, what are you talking about? Yeah, I, so um, it either would have been those guys would have defended Trump's statements or they would have gone like, ah, well, I support Israel, but not in this Trumpian way. So yeah, who knows? He, he, Trump guess. really is a wild card. My best guess for how he would have handled this exact set of facts with Israel and Gaza is since Sheldon Adelson, I think was literally his number one donor. He gave him $100 million on two separate occasions. And that was one of the reasons why he moved the embassy to Jerusalem. But because of Sheldon Adelson, now he's dead, but is his wife still alive? Um, and because of how he reacted, remember when Saudi Arabia murdered and dismembered the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi and Trump didn't even... Didn't even give him a slap on the wrist. It was not, he wouldn't even utter a word of, hey, this is wrong or this is bad or there's going to be consequences. Nothing. So when I look at that, my guess is as bad as Biden has been, I think Trump would literally have been like to Netanyahu. If you want to nuke him, go ahead and nuke him. I don't give a shit. I, yeah. I agree. It's and and you know, I mean, we soon we're going to get the chance to correct the record. If the American uh -oh. people really want Gaza nuked uh, in in less uh -oh. than one year, they'll have the opportunity to get the guy in. Uh, there are there are I, I don't know. We we really are living in like to 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 quote uh, a podcast I like. What historians will refer to as the cool zone. Um, there's no precedent for what's happening. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Political analysis almost feels like a hasty set of post hoc just like uh, uh, rationalizations where something happens and you're like, oh, 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 of course, where, where it's, it's really difficult to predict anything out in any direction. Even like really simple stuff like Nikki Haley doing really well with independence in New Hampshire. I wouldn't have called that. Like it, it seems like nothing is concrete. In this environment, I guess, to, to reflect what was being discussed earlier, I, I think that my already decreasing appetite for contention is, is lowered significantly. I don't know. There's, it's so important that we work together in, in the face of what we're dealing with. And um, I mean, shit, just with this Greg Abbott thing, just what's going oh on in Texas. Yeah. On Twitter right now, like every Republican is screaming about how like this is it. Like get, grab your guns, you know, the, the, right. the feds are going to march in and we need to kill them. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's wild. It's wild. On that cheery, cheery note, of course, we'll go yeah. ahead and wrap it up here. Uh, Vosh, thank you for joining me. Where are you going on vacation? Oh, I'm just going to see my folks for a bit. Uh, I was oh, just okay. going to go down there gotcha. and uh, enjoy slightly warmer weather. Gotcha. Are, where are you, Seattle? I'm in Seattle. They're in L.A. So They're in um, L.A., yeah. We're You're going, going like from LA like 30 to 50. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot better this time of year. It's randomly 70 degrees here in Virginia today. I don't understand why that is, but I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept it with a smile on my face. But again, thank you for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. 
And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Uh, by the way, um, uh, fuck the haters. Your hair looks fantastic. Um, Thank huge you, sir. Job. Uh, you should keep it up. Uh, I, I hope will. you have a wonderful day. Thanks, man. You too. Appreciate it. Take care.